talking about The Demon in the Machine with its author, Paul Davies, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The full title of Paul's new book is The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. And even that audacious title doesn't do the book full justice. On this special episode, we'll talk with Paul for nearly an hour, followed, of course, by our latest look at that crowded night sky with Bruce Betts. We've got a copy of the book for the winner of Bruce's new space trivia contest. Planetary science and missions dominate our review of the latest headlines in the downlink, the Planetary Society's digest of the biggest stories from around our little universe are collected each week by editorial director Jason Davis. Alan Stern and the science team behind NASA's New Horizons mission released new results from the spacecraft's flyby of the Kuiper Belt object Arakoth last year. The findings published in the journal Science further support the notion that Arakoth's two round lobes formed in the same region of space and came together in a slow-speed collision. With NASA's 2020 rover now in Florida for its summertime launch, we've learned that the European Space Agency's Rosalind Franklin Mars rover has made it to France, where it will be mated to its descent module. The critical parachutes needed for the mission are still undergoing tests. NASA announced the selection of four mission concepts in its relatively low-cost discovery program. The only shame is that all four may not be funded. Two aim for Venus, another for Jupiter's violent moon Io, with the last targeting Neptune's Triton. The field should narrow to two later this year. Lastly, your latest opportunity to slip the surly bonds of Earth without having to buy a ticket. NASA is taking applications for the next astronaut class. The window is open from March 2nd through the 31st. Who knows? You might end up on the moon or Mars. You can always find more at planetary.org slash downlink. Don't forget that we're about to expand the downlink. Life equals matter plus information. That simple statement is at the core of Paul Davies' wonderful new book, along with consideration of the origin of life on Earth and elsewhere, whether exotic quantum mechanics is utilized by living things, the staggering complexity of a single cell, and much more. Paul is Regents Professor of Physics at Arizona State University. That's also where he heads the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, a fitting role for this latter-day Renaissance man who is a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, and more. The Demon in the Machine is, I believe, his 31st book. I recently sat down with Paul at the University of California, San Diego, where the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination allowed us to use its studio. Paul Davies, welcome back to Planetary Radio. It has been a long time uh, since we talked about your book, what, of about 10 years ago, The Eerie Silence. I loved that book, but... This book is as awe-inspiring as any nonfiction I have ever read. So uh, thank you for The Demon in the Machine, which was what we'll talk about over the next few minutes. Well, thank you for being so enthusiastic. (laughs) 
Um, and we will also, uh, if your publisher is agreeable, we'll um, make a copy available to the winner of this week's Space Trivia Contest that we'll get to in the What's Up uh, segment of the show that will come after this conversation. I want to start really where you finish the book in your epilogue. It's, it's led by a quote from Albert Einstein. One can best feel in dealing with living things how primitive physics still is. Do you believe that understanding life on Earth and and possibly elsewhere is going to require a, a new understanding of physics? I do. Now, I'm a physicist, and one doesn't say lightly that uh, there is new physics going on in life. But uh, this quest to answer the question, what is life, goes back uh, many, many decades, and uh, most obviously to Erwin Schrödinger, who in 1943 gave a series of lectures, famous lectures in uh, Dublin, Ireland, which was neutral during World War II, uh, asking the question, what is life? The key thing is, can life be understood by physics? Well, I think every physicist would say, well, of course. But the real question is, can it be understood by known physics or does it require new physics? Schrodinger was open-minded about it. I've been open-minded about it my entire career, reluctant to Mm. suggest new physics. But I have now come to the conclusion that, yes, we need new physics or we will discover new physics in living systems. So biology is the next frontier of physics. Because you brought it up, I mean, you mentioned these lectures by Schrodinger at a couple of places in the book. He was quite the visionary with these lectures. Oh, absolutely. Now, Schrodinger, remember, was a giant of theoretical physics. He was the architect of quantum mechanics, the most successful scientific theory ever. At a stroke, quantum mechanics explained non-living matter all the way from atoms, uh, atomic nuclei, subatomic particles, right up to stars. So enormously successful. But it wouldn't explain living matter, not readily anyway. And so uh, fast forward from the 1920s, which was when Schrodinger and Heisenberg and others put quantum mechanics together to now the World War II years. And here is Schrodinger, uh, somewhat isolated from the mainstream because he's in neutral Ireland. He didn't join the Allied war effort. He's living there with his wife and his mistress and able to indulge his uh, fancies by turning his attention to this uh, really deep problem about the nature of life. And there was a lot of speculation in the 1930s that, you know, was quantum mechanics going to explain life or wouldn't it explain life and what did what did it take? And he gave these lectures and it It's widely attributed uh, to Schrodinger, uh, what we think of now as the birth of molecular biology. So Crick and Watson, uh, who discovered the structure of DNA, were famously influenced by this book. A lot of other people were. And so it was a very influential book. Uh, But then the decades rolled by and everyone was rushing to understand life at the molecular level and, in my view, lost sight of the big picture, uh, that life is much more than uh, what's going on at molecular level. Which is much of what you address in this book. Uh, There's a very simple equation, or at least statement, in the book, which is in the biggest typeface in the book, and it uh, is life equals matter plus information. Does that mean that you believe that information is the distinguishing quality of what sets living matter apart from the, the rest of stuff? It is, and of course I have to explain that information uh, in this scientific context is not just like when we use it in everyday life, information in a bus timetable or something of that sort. Uh, information as a physical 
quantity. Uh, now, uh, there's a historical precedent. Uh, we use the word energy in daily life, and it's got sort of rough and ready meaning. But physicists define energy in a very precise way, and it enters into the laws of physics. We now know that information properly defined enters into the fundamental laws of physics, into the laws of thermodynamics, in fact. And the demon in the title of the book uh, refers to something called Maxwell's demon. Uh, and uh, just to take you through the history of this, so in the uh, middle of the 19th century, there was a lot of interest in the nature of heat. And uh, James Clerk Maxwell, then working at King's College in London, made seminal contributions to the theory of heat. And he came up with a curious thought. It was not much more than a, a musing, which he put in a letter to a friend. Uh, and that was, imagine some diminu diminutive uh, being, which came to be called a demon, uh, who could see and uh, follow molecules in their paths and then direct them using a shutter mechanism to one side of a box or another. By doing that, could accumulate the fast-moving molecules one side and the slow-moving molecules the other. And now, because molecular speed is a measure of temperature, uh, the demon would, in effect, have used the information about molecular motion to create a temperature difference, and any competent engineer could then build uh, an engine to run off that temperature difference and do useful work. So it looked like information was a type of fuel, but it seemed paradoxical. It seemed to fly in the face of the cherished second law of thermodynamics, which says basically you can't get something for nothing. It looked like Maxwell had invented a perpetual motion machine. Uh, and this lay like an inconvenient truth at the heart of physics for decades and decades. Uh, but now, just in the last few years, nanotechnology has advanced to the point where we can make I say we, uh, my experimental colleagues, can actually make Maxwell demons. They can uh, make these little devices which use information about thermal agitation to gain a work advantage. You can only do it on a nanoscale. Uh, this isn't going to revolutionize uh, kitchen refrigerators anytime soon. <laughs> but nevertheless, the principle is established that information is a source of fuel. It enters into the laws of physics. So it has some physical purchase. And that's the point. It's the little chink that opens the way to explaining how information can make a difference when it comes to the amazing things that living organisms do. You've reminded me of a, of a clever little science fiction story once written by the great Larry Niven, where it was the time of magic on this planet, and a wizard visiting another wizard in his cave wonders why it's so much cooler in the cave. And the, the host wizard says, oh, it's really quite simple. I cast this spell and I have this little sprite or demon who kicks out all the fast-moving molecules. It was an air, a demon air conditioner. Right. <laughs> you mentioned the second law. It is the demons, therefore, maybe among other things, who help living things like you and, you and me to uh, at least temporarily win the battle against entropy? So one of the distinguishing features about life, uh, always comes up in conversation, is it seems to buck the trend of going uh, from ordered to disordered. So uh, any of our listeners with teenage children would know all about this. Uh, just look in their bedrooms. Uh, you know, it's very easy to, to make things messy, uh, very hard to clean things up. But life does seem to go the other way. It seems to create, uh, as Schrodinger uh, expressed it, order from order, ever more order. And so it seems to go the opposite way. Now, some people have seized on that and said, oh, 
therefore it's got to be a miracle or something. Uh, not a bit of it, because when you look at the whole picture, uh, you see that the order in living organisms is paid for by disorder in the environment. And so the book's balance. But within the organism itself, remember, life is an open system. And that's a really important point of trying to uh, explain what is going on. It's not a closed system. Uh, it's an open system. And then uh, within, down at the molecular level, within our cells, uh, they are replete with little Maxwell demons chuntering away, carrying out the business of life, playing the margins of thermodynamics. Some of these little engines or, or motors or uh, little devices uh, are almost 100% perfectly efficient. And I'm thinking, for example, of the way DNA gets copied. There's a polymerase motor. Uh, there are other uh, little motors that pump uh, protons and so on, and these are operating right on the edge of, uh, of perfection. We can't do that in, with our machines in uh, daily life, uh, except in, in nanotechnology. And so life has perfected, and obviously did billions of years ago, this ability to play these margins. The case that is most striking, although when you look at the details, the, the demonics are not 100% uh, efficient, but they're still good, the case is the human brain. Uh, so here we have something with the capability of a megawatt supercomputer, but operating at the level energy level of a dim light bulb. Uh, and that just shows how incredibly thermodynamically efficient information processing in this thing between our ears can be. So we obviously still have much to learn from biology up here in the, the grosser physical world. Uh, well, there are two things here. One is uh, that we can certainly uh, learn how to play a few, as it were, thermodynamic tricks uh, that would improve the performance of our macroscopic systems. That, that is undeniably true. But I think it goes deeper than that because information in biology is more than just thermodynamics. We tend to think of information in, a, as it were, a manage, management or supervisory role, uh, that there are the information in biology is much more than that contained in our genes. That's what most people think of. They think that the, the code book of life or something like that. But genes uh, don't act in isolation. Uh, they switch each other on and off. They form complex networks. Information swirls around these networks. A lot of people study that. Patterns of information, uh, information flow. Uh, it goes right on up to uh, the level of cells so that signal each other. There are signaling molecules. Uh, so they signal chemically, but also we now know electrically and mechanically this information transfer is taking place and right up to social insects that uh, engage in collective decision-making, for example, or you think of the coordination of birds in a, in a flock. In fact, it goes right up. When you look at the uh, information, the web of information of life on Earth, it, it's on a planetary scale. And I like to say that the biosphere is the original World Wide Web. Mm. It mm -hmm. is a web of information. Uh, and that information is doing more than just uh, improving the thermodynamic efficiency. Uh, it is behaving in technical term is that this information is semantic. It means something. So the uh, parts of a genome, are the coding parts, uh, the genes themselves, are coding for something, uh, and I should mention that that information is encrypted and has to be decrypted and then expressed. Uh, ribosomes make proteins using that information that flows from the DNA. So that uh, uh, level of information processing means that this is more than just uh, bits of information. It's information which has meaning or context and can be interpreted 
by the ribosome and then expressed. And, and that notion of meaningful or semantic or contextual information is something that we have no idea how to incorporate that into physics. Uh, that's where the new physics will lie, trying to understand, go beyond just the thermodynamics of this to that uh, realm of semantics. But we know it matters. We know it makes a difference to the way organisms behave. It's got to have physical effects. You have in this touched on, really just scratched the surface, of the complexity of life, even of a single cell. You made me remember as I went deeper and deeper into these mind-boggling complex processes that life has mastered just within a cell. Uh, when I was in high school biology class, I remember being blown away because I, I learned about these tiny fibers, which before a, a cell splits in mitosis, these fibers reach out to the chromosomes or chromatids and literally pull them apart before the, the cell splits into yeah. two. Where is the choreographer? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I thought, even at that time, I thought, oh my goodness, this is so complex. That's nothing compared to some of the complexity that you talk about in this book within a single cell. No, it is, it is truly staggering. And in fact, one of the great challenges is to put a measure to that, just how complex uh, can you measure complexity? All sorts of different ways you might try and do that. Uh, can we uh, somehow understand whether that complexity grows over time? Is there a fundamental law of the growth of complexity? When we look at the biosphere, it looks like there are certainly more complex organisms around today than there were. Is that a trend or is it just an exploration of the space of possibilities? All these things are unresolved. But the complexity, the level of complexity is truly staggering. And I think there has been a tendency uh, to say, well, life is uh, seems like magic because it is so complex, but deep down at the level of atoms, it's just uh, known physics. That's uh, sort of the god of the gaps uh, uh, yes, argument, right? Yes, and I think uh, this sort of over-reductionistic view, well, if we knew enough about uh, the physics of individual molecules and put it all together, we'd have an explanation for uh, the totality. And I just think uh, that's wrong. And I think to be hung up on the complexity, so it's a little bit like the problem of trying to explain uh, some sophisticated bit of computer software by saying, well, uh, we could, in principle, give a complete explanation in terms of where the electrons are moving in the microchip. And mm. uh, if we listed all this, and it would be very complex, but, you know, it would give an account of what is going on on your computer screen. And we all know, this is an absurd way of looking at it, that you, you talk to a software engineer and you'll be given a fairly compact description of what is going on. So the real causal story, uh, in the case of a computer, take something like Photoshop or PowerPoint or something like that, an explanation for PowerPoint will come without making reference to the underlying circuitry or anything of that sort. And I think that's where we need to move to that situation with life. We need to use this uh, software information type language. And I'm not alone in that. So Paul Nurse, the former president of the Royal Society, has written very eloquently on the need to think in these sort of informational terms and comparing living organisms a bit to like uh, computers or electronic devices where we have 
have modules that fulfill certain well-defined functions, for example, log logical functions, uh, uh, even microbes can carry out uh, logical operations. Uh, we don't have to worry what's going on at the molecular level. We just have to say, what is this module doing? What is its function? How is it communicating? They're sending information to other modules uh, and looking at those patterns of information flow. And that's where we will really come to understand life, at that software level. So I can use my Windows laptop without being able to write or modify the code in Windows. Right. But really, that's where the mysteries lie. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, so for, I like to say to me, Windows seems like magic. Life seems like magic. Uh, we know they're not magic, but we know that you will fail to capture an adequate description of both of them if we just want to talk about electrons flying around uh, wires or something of that sort. Something, obviously, is directing all of this, and the common assumption is, oh, well, it's all in the DNA, right? It's all in the, that double helix. And yet, it turns out to be far more complex than that, as you explore in the book, because DNA, as you say, is turns out not to be read-only memory, ROM. It's a read-write system. Uh, that's absolutely right. So what has happened uh, over the last 30 years or so is an appreciation that the secret of life doesn't lie in DNA alone. I think there was a feeling, well, you just sequence uh, genomes of organisms and you'll get a complete explanation of what they do and how they do it. Uh, genes are only uh, good if they're expressed, and uh, what determines uh, whether genes are expressed or not, uh, well, there's a, this vague term called epigenetics. Uh, epigenetics can involve all sorts of things from the cell and from its environment. So, for example, even uh, mechanical forces acting on a cell can affect uh, the genes it expresses. Famous example is called contact inhibition. You grow cells in a petri dish; they will grow until they hit a boundary, and then they will stop growing. So they sense their uh, barrier in their environment. So just a simple mechanical effect like that can change how genes express themselves. You said you told me before we started recording that uh, you have colleagues at Arizona State who are also looking at these epigenetic effects on cells in orbit, in microgravity. That's right. So uh, if you send uh, bacteria to the space station, uh, they will express different genes from what they do down here, and uh, that can affect astronaut microbiome. So, for example, it may be uh, that uh, particular bacterium in our guts doesn't cause any problem down here, but feels different up there because this uh, this little microbe thinks, oh, I'm, I'm floating and I'm going to express this gene and not that gene, and uh, the astronaut may get sick. So this is the work of Cheryl Nickerson at Arizona State University. It's just one example of how physical forces uh, affect gene expression. The other one that I love is the work of uh, Mike Levin at Tufts University, and we have a research project with him, and he likes to chop up worms, and uh, there are these little worms called uh, planaria. When you uh, chop them in two, the heads grow a tail and the tail grows a head, so you can multiply them uh, very easily just by chopping them into bits. You can chop them into actually many bits, and the uh, fragments from the middle remember which way was the head and which way is the tail. That information is not in the genes. This is a classic example of epigenetics because the 
morphology, the physical form of these worms, is determined by something other than their DNA. So he can manipulate these worms to make them grow two heads and two tails. He does this by changing the electrical patterning. So mm. he, uh, so we understand that uh, electricity plays a really important part in development and uh, and in wound healing and in cancer. All of these things are related. Uh, he can manipulate them and gets two-headed worms and two-tailed worms. They have identical DNA. So identical genetics, but the epigenetics, the expression of those genes, is quite different. And the uh, uh, most entertaining aspect of that is if he chops the middle out of normal worms with a head and a tail, sends uh, those middles to the space station, uh, about 15% of them came back with two heads. <laughs> My conversation with Paul Davies is far from finished. I'm just pausing for a minute so that I can once again thank Amazon Prime Video's The Expanse for bringing you this week's show. You've probably heard my praise for season four of this superb science fiction series. Of course, I love everything about The Expanse, including the first three seasons of the TV series and all the books. Thanks again, Jeff Bezos, for rescuing the show when it was dropped by Sci-Fi. To recap, without giving too much away, I hope... Our heroes, the crew of the Rocinante, have passed through the Ring Gate, heading toward a distant world that has enormously valuable natural resources. Earth has sent an approved group of miners, but a ragtag bunch of refugee belters has beat them to the planet. The inevitable conflicts that follow become far more dangerous when ancient alien artifacts come back to life. I can't possibly do it justice, so just hitch a ride on the Rocinante. The Expanse Season 4 is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. Back to Paul Davies, author of The Demon in the Machine. How does a gene living deep inside a cell that is deep inside my body know that it is being in a different electrical or gravitational environment. I mean, it's just a molecule or a line of molecules. Right. So this is where physicists, um, by tradition, have uh, thought always in a bottom-up fashion. Uh, that is that uh, we tend to think that physical effects are local effects, that they uh, we can always say what is happening at a particular point in space and time or to a particular uh, subatomic particle at that particle. But uh, when it comes to biology, uh, that's uh, totally inadequate. Now, there's a tendency to think that bottom up there that, well, a gene is a strand of, uh, of DNA, it's a, it's a segment of DNA, uh, and that it sends out a, a message and this is expressed as a, as a protein and the organism then uh, behaves differently. And there is obviously a bottom up narrative, but there's equally a top down narrative that what is happening uh, in the cell's microenvironment, signals it may receive from other cells or pressure on the or stress forces on the surface of the cell or electrical forces or gravitational, as I've explained, can uh, act in a downward sense, right down to the level of those genes. And the genes that get expressed depend on that, that environment. So we need to recast the physics that's going on in, in these cells to include a bottom-up and a top-down narrative. Again, I come back to if we express this in informational terms, uh, then uh, this is a lot easier to do. If you want to express it in terms of what molecule pushes which, it then becomes unmanageably complicated. Mm. But in terms of the information flow, it goes bottom-up and top-down. Uh, the case that I like best of all, I might say, is... Uh, 
chromatin structure. So in eukaryotic cells, complex cells with nuclei, uh, the genes are mostly in the chromosomes. And these chromosomes don't just sit there like you see in the textbooks. Um, uh, they have a complex architecture that is highly dynamic and it changes. Uh, and for a lot of the time, a particular gene that might the cell might want to express will be uh, simply smothered by all of the, uh, it's called chromatin, this material, all of the chromatin in its uh, vicinity. And this chromatin then has to be reconfigured. Uh, there are all sorts of little wires and strings and things that will do that, has to be reconfigured in order that that gene uh, is exposed to the readout machinery. And so this is another example of epigenetics, that the genes that get expressed depend upon this chromatin architecture, and that can be can be uh, top-down as well as bottom-up. Mm. There can be uh, forces from the environment that will change uh, that architecture and lead to differential gene expression. This brings me back to consideration of evolution, and specifically the mutations that apparently drive it, which I always thought, I think I was taught, that these were random. And you say in the book, maybe not. Yes, I think one of the most surprising things coming out of, uh, we might call it, the new biology uh, is that in individual causes of mutations might be random. For example, cosmic rays mm. uh, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't come with a plan. I'm going to hit this uh, particular part of uh, DNA or, or other. But there are many, many uh, examples of mutations which, uh, when, you, when you actually look at the statistics, appear to be non-random. Some of these are, are clearly self-inflicted. Now, uh, we're very used to the uh, notion of gene editing, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 uh, uh, technology now enables human beings to go in and edit genomes, so we can certainly do that. With unprecedented ease. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But cells uh, edit their own genomes all the time. Uh, there are errors and they edit them out, or they uh, can choose to not edit them out. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that cells can... Their, their DNA is not just fixed. You know, it's, it's subject to, uh, to these editing processes. When you look at this more complex picture, uh, it's very far from random. Uh, and uh, and one sees that in uh, in cancer biology, where mm. certain particular mutations uh, seem to arise again and again. These mutations can sometimes be uh, gross uh, changes. Uh, for example, uh, transpositions of whole chunks of uh, chromosomes. That's very far from random. You don't see this, not Lamarckism, but you don't see this as a denial of Darwinism so-called. No, you an call elaboration it, of it. Yeah, Darwinism 2.0. Yes. So uh, a lot of people uh, just fall for this trap. Just because the original version of Darwinism is inadequate to explain some important aspects of biology it doesn't mean Darwin was wrong any more than Newton was wrong about the laws of gravitation. We have a better theory now, Einstein's theory, that embeds Newton's theory. Uh, science advances by better and better fits to the facts. And so Darwinism is astonishing how powerful it has been, given that it was formulated uh, so long ago, and yet it has uh, stood the test of time. But uh, it would be really foolish to say that the austere original version of Darwinism, random mutation, natural selection, end of story, uh, is going to explain everything. And now uh, what we're seeing with this uh, field of epigenetics uh, is that we have to augment the original Darwinian scheme with all of these other features which are uh, being worked through. And uh, biologists uh, working at the cutting edge are now completely familiar with it, but I'm not sure how much the general public has caught up with the fact that 
the old reductionistic uh, view of Darwinism uh, has really been uh, superseded uh, really quite a long time ago. We will turn to cancer, but I'll start that uh, by talking about uh, your discussion of multicellular organisms, uh, including yours truly, that this, is, this represents a contract between individual cells and the organism. Perhaps a topic for another day would be this jump from maybe, maybe not, life is a natural process within the universe, the, the origin of life, but a lot of scientists believe it's this jump from the single-celled animals, bacteria especially, to you and me that may be the bigger hurdle. But it is this ability to collaborate, to cooperate among all these cells, which you, you talk about in the book. Yeah, two billion years ago, there was one imperative, replicate, 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 <laughs> because this was the realm of, of single cells, and that's all they had to do. So they were immortal, in effect. Uh, and then uh, along came this uh, other way of doing life, which we now call multicellularity. It's actually evolved uh, many times. Uh, and what happens here is that the immortality of cells is outsourced to specialized uh, germ cells, so like eggs and sperm. The rest of the cells, so-called somatic cells in the collective, in the organism, uh, their part of that contract is that they can uh, uh, replicate for a while or they can be sustained for a while, but eventually they're supposed to die. We have stem cells that uh, can replenish them. Uh, and for the organism to work properly, uh, you have to avoid cheating. Uh, what happens, say, in an organism like a human being is we've got all these uh, different specialized cells, uh, kidney cells, liver cells, skin cells, and so on, and they have to listen to the uh, regulatory signals that they get. You, uh, you die now, you die now, uh, you, you get replaced now, and so on. And if it's all working fine, there's very complex uh, layer upon layer of regulatory control. But if something breaks down, either uh, part of the regulation or an individual cell decides to cheat, then cancer results. And so this is a contract struck between the cells of, uh, somatic cells of a body and the organism as a whole about one and a half billion years ago. Uh, so, so I mentioned uh, that uh, multicellularity uh, has evolved many times, and that's over a period between about one and a half billion years ago and a few hundred million years ago. And so... Uh, that contract breaks down and uh, the cancer cells are making a bid for immortality. They, they're, try, they're a throwback. They're trying to wind the clock back to the glory days of replicate, replicate, replicate. My understanding of cancer is that it is uh, a reversion uh, or a throwback or an atavism and um, that we have to understand it that way if we're going to treat it properly. So cancer is... <laughs> It's the downside of multicellular life. Right. So it's great for the cancer cells because they're uh, re uh, reawakening their inner immortality, but of course it's bad for the host. But the cells don't know that. They don't know that they're in, the, in a host that has a different agenda. Uh, and so they're very successful in their own way. But because they're proliferation is really uh, life 101. So this is mm. when life began... Uh, the most fundamental thing that it had to do was to proliferate. And uh, it then had to learn a whole lot of tricks uh, to combat challenges to its proliferative ability. Uh, for example, if there were poisons, then it developed pump, pump them out. Or radiation, you know, learn to repair the radiation damage and so on. So there are all sorts of ways 
that uh, individual cells spent billions of years coming up with defense mechanisms to combat their proliferative ability. But unfortunately, most cancer treatment tries to challenge that ability. It, it targets the replicative, uh, uncontrolled replicative uh, prowess of cancer cells. But you're sort of on a hiding to nothing because that's the one thing that cells really know how to get around. And they evolve around whatever you throw at them uh, pretty quickly. And so part of the reason cancer is such a dreadful disease is because of the development of resistance uh, to chemotherapy. Uh, so targeting that the strength of cancer in that way is, is always going to be fighting a losing battle, uh, I'm sad to say. But if we want uh, to uh, be smarter about tackling cancer, we tackle its weaknesses, not its strength. It is eventually not healthy for the cancer cells themselves. They die with the organism. Oh, yeah, but they don't know that. They if, don't know this is going to happen. But if only we could reason with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in a sense, doesn't that, in a somewhat fanciful way, address how you think we should attack this problem? Uh, I mean, we need to change the the flaws in the information, they're not really flaws. Yes, uh, or, that's quite right. My dream mm. is that if we treat, uh, if we think of cancer in these informational terms, that this will be a little bit like uh, we were talking about, uh, you know, Photoshop or PowerPoint. You have a bug in the program and it's, uh, it's doing this annoying thing, you know, what, what can we do about it? And sometimes you can go online and download a patch, you know, and it sort of fixes it. Sometimes you actually have to reinstall the operating system, you know, and, and all things in between. Uh, imagine if we could uh, treat uh, diseases like that. Uh, we could reboot cells or, or download patches that would take care of some of these flaws. And, and it may be this isn't a perfect fix, but uh, what you want to do is take a cancer cell and make it sort of behave better. In other words, we can live with some little bugs and, and flaws, but we mm. don't want it to be a sort of rampant breakdown. Don't ask me how we might do that in practice, but you know that's the vision I have, that in the longer term we will uh, reboot in that manner. But in the shorter term, I think we need to get away from the mindset people are justifiably scared of cancer, and if they're diagnosed with cancer, they want it annihilated. Uh, and uh, Many of the treatments uh, bring the cancer patient to death's door, and mm -hmm. people think it's a price they're prepared to pay uh, just to get rid of this horrid stuff. And every, They want every cancer cell you know, destroyed uh, because they feel it's like an invader. But if we can get to the point where we can say, look, uh, we can manage the cancer. We get to uh, treat, treat it but not annihilate it and turn it into a chronic disease and you'll be living with the cancer as we're all living with cancer anyway. And the point is uh, the body is very good at containing cancer. It has all sorts of things like immune surveillance and uh, uh, in the microenvironment of cancer cells, uh, various chemical signals and things that will normally keep cancer in check people present with clinical symptoms when some of those systems break down. Mm. Uh, but if we could say, well, no, we want to restore uh, that uh, the body's own way of containing the cancer, we can live with it. And so if you say to somebody, uh, and this is a, a very common scenario, you might be a, uh, diagnosed with a primary tumor and you might have surgery to remove that tumor. And you'll probably be told that there's a 50-50 chance or some number that the cancer will come back in five years or 10 years or something like that. And that's the, the depressing truth. If you could say, well, uh, our cancer management strategy is such that there's a 50% chance it will come back in 50 years 
that I think most of us would feel, well, I've got other things to worry about on the health front. Uh, so we turn cancer into a chronic disease that we manage, much like we do, say, with diabetes. Uh, you live with it, you make the best of it, uh, you don't try and annihilate it. Uh, but that mindset, it, it means a re-education of the public into thinking that cancer isn't something that you've just got to go in with all guns blazing and mm -hmm. uh, try to annihilate. It's often counterproductive. The cancer bites back even more uh, ferociously uh, than before. And the treatment, as you said, it is sometimes worse than... The, the, yes. Uh, yeah. and, and, and in fact, uh, as people get older, they, they'll often be denied treatment because their mm. body simply isn't resilient enough to withstand yes, the effects of the treatment. Let's turn to quantum mechanics. Right, a happier subject, I think. Yes, I hope so. Uh, obviously, something its role in living systems that fascinates you, as it has so many, Schrodinger among them. To what degree do you think we are quantum mechanical creatures? So it's rather fascinating that the subject that is now uh, known as quantum biology has sort of bubbled up uh, over the last 10 or 20 years. I've run a few workshops uh, at the Beyond Center on quantum biology, and and I sit very firmly on the fence, it's undeniable that here and there life exploits quantum effects. And why wouldn't it? If it gives living systems some little advantage, 5% uh, here, 10% there, it will be selected for. What we'd all like to know is, are these just little quirks, uh, or is, uh, are they tips of a quantum mechanical iceberg? In other words, is it the case that fundamentally quantum phenomena underpin this magic of life. Mm -hmm. So does the magic of quantum mechanics explain the magic of life? I've yet to be convinced myself, uh, but I try to keep an open mind. Uh, and some people will say, well, of course, quantum mechanics explains life, it explains chemistry. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. When people refer to quantum biology, they normally mean some of these weird quantum effects like tunneling or uh, entanglement where two Particles a long way apart seem to be communicating with each other in some magical way. Spooky uh, action uh, yes, at a distance. Uh, as Einstein called it, yeah. And so there are these uh, various, as it were, non-trivial quantum effects. Uh, and, uh, and again, it's, it does seem, I'm fairly convinced, that here and there life is making use of them. But I suspect there's, there's a lot more to be discovered. The trouble is that, uh, well, there are two problems. One is the experimental one uh, that, as we've discussed, Life is very complex, and most of our understanding of quantum physics is based on simple systems, atoms and simple molecules and photons and things like that. So teasing out the quantum goings-on in this complex environment is very difficult. The other thing is that living organisms are warm and wet, uh, very noisy in mm. the thermodynamic sense. There's molecules banging around, lots of uh, complicating factors that is the opposite of what you need to look at pure quantum effects. So if you go to a lab uh, and uh, you're interested in uh, testing the foundations of quantum mechanics, it's, it's full of uh, pipes and pumps, uh, and things are done at a very low temperature to cut out this thermal noise, uh, and where you really see the pure quantum effects, like superconductivity and so on, is at very low temperatures. Uh, a room temperature or blood temperature, uh, then uh, it's very hard to see how quantum effects are really going to matter. But quantum mechanics has, has sprung surprises before, and there's things like high-temperature superconductors that nobody expected. Who knows what might be going on uh, inside living organisms? 
isn't one of those surprises that some believe they have already found evidence for it, of the, the, the quantum contribution to photosynthesis. Yes, this is one of the uh, examples that seems pretty clear-cut now, though there are, of course, uh, some skeptics. Uh, you might think, well, of course, photosynthesis is, uh, is a quantum effect. It's photons. <laughs> but that's not the sense in which uh, that we uh, discuss it. Uh, what happens is uh, that in photosynthesis is that these photons are captured by a complex of molecules, and their job, the energy that uh, they bring is used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and then that's uh, part of, of what gives the plant uh, energy and it can make biomass that way. Um, but the chemical reaction center is over here and the uh, light harvesting center is over there, and it's a little bit like having a factory that makes stuff and you've got solar panels powering it, but the solar panels are in the next town and you've got to get the energy from uh, one town to another. That's uh, the case uh, with photosynthesis. That energy has to be transported and you don't want to lose any on the way. And life seems to have evolved uh, a very, very clever way of doing that quantum coherently is the technical term. And uh, what that really means, if people know anything at all about quantum mechanics, they'll know there's this thing called wave-particle duality. An electron can sometimes be a part like, behave like a particle, sometimes like a wave. Same thing with a photon. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Well, it's sort of both. And it depends on the circumstances. Uh, what is happening in this uh, energy transport is uh, the wave-like nature of the energy is manifested uh, as it makes its way through a complex of molecules. And uh, waves have this um, uh, well-known property of uh, interference. Uh, if you get a peak of one wave with a trough of another, uh, they cancel each other out. If they arrive peak to peak, they amplify. Uh, and those sorts of effects can, and in this case, I think, do lead to a speed-up of the an increase in efficiency of the way the energy is transported uh, to the reaction center. And this has been studied in quite some detail with laser pulses and so on, uh, and in particular the work of uh, Graham Fleming at, uh, in Berkeley that blazed a trail in this area. And it's, it's one of several examples that have been studied where quantum mechanics really does seem to make a difference in biology. What about the speculation, which also goes pretty far back, that quantum effects, quantum mechanics, may help us understand or may explain how the brain achieves what it does. There's always been this speculation that quantum mechanics and consciousness somehow connect up. And the reasons for that is very profound and would take us a long time to go into them in detail. Uh, but it is, in essence, that quantum mechanics describes a world that is uncertain and indeterministic and fuzzy. Down at the atomic level, you can fire an electron at an atom and it may bounce to the left, and you do an identical experiment tomorrow and it bounces to the right. You can't say in advance what it's going to do. So there's an indeterminism, and the fuzziness means that you can't pin down all of the things the electron is doing uh, at any one time, or any other particle. So there's a sort of ghostliness to the quantum world down at the atomic level, but there's no ghostliness in everyday life. When we make observations, if you look, you want to determine where is an electron, you can do an experiment and it's there. It's an electron at a place. Or you can do some other experiment and you find that an electron is moving in a certain way. You can't do these experiments together. But whatever you, the observer, decide to measure, you get a definite result. Mm -hmm. So somehow, between the fuzzy 
ghostly world of atoms and molecules and the concrete everyday world of human beings, the uh, fuzziness has congealed or concretized into a definite reality. So it's as if there are an infinite number of parallel possible realities at the atomic level, but only one reality in daily life. And some people have thought, well, uh, therefore the act of observation, the entry into the consciousness of the individual uh, is doing something important at the quantum level. The consciousness is somehow concretizing the fuzzy world of uh, atomic physics. So the most famously Eugene Wigner, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, suggested that. Very, very few of my colleagues uh, would be prepared to go along with that. But they would all acknowledge that uh, when it comes to consciousness, either quantum mechanics will explain consciousness or it won't. And if it doesn't, then there's something new going on in the brain. Uh, some people have tried to come at it from the other direction uh, to say, well, are there quantum effects in the brain a uh, bit like we described for photosynthesis, is something like that going on inside the brain down at the level of uh, large molecules. Most uh, famously, Roger Penrose, the Oxford mm. mathematician, suggested many years ago, and his collaboration with Stuart Hameroff at the uh, University of Arizona has been to determine whether there are non-trivial quantum effects taking place in the little tubules inside cells and that uh, in the brain there's some quantums, quantum goings on that explain consciousness. I have to say I'm very sceptical, personally. But the great thing about being a scientist is you can be both sceptical and open-minded at the same time. And good scientists should always be that. We should always listen to what our colleagues have to say. And if we think, well, I'm still not convinced, but you know, keep up the good work, uh, that's fine. And that's the attitude I take. Here, here. You do talk about, and maybe it's the overarching principle of this portion of the book, that as we look for quantum effects, how life might use quantum theory, you say, well, why wouldn't it? It's so effective. Yes. Uh, uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier, that if life spots, it, it gains a 5% edge or a 10% edge. Of course, uh, that will be selected for. So we come back to the, the question, is quantum biology simply sophisticated life discovering some interesting physics on the way? Mm. Or was quantum mechanics right there at the outset? In other words, uh, was it the, the midwife uh, <laughs> of, of, of life uh, right back at the beginning? Well, because we have no idea how non-life turned into life, as I keep stressing ad nauseum, uh, it's impossible to know whether a quantum pathway uh, from non-life to life might uh, be the explanation. Uh, there's some attraction in thinking that because one of the things quantum mechanics can do is explore many possible pathways simultaneously. Mm. Uh, and so I mentioned that an electron might bounce to the left or it might bounce to the right. Uh, the way we like to describe that mathematically is that there are two possible worlds or pathways for the electron. In practice, there'll be an infinite number. And that, that all else being equal, if you don't perform any measurements, uh, all of these pathways are, are present together and somehow contributing to the final answer. And so could it be that there is some quantum exploration of pathways uh, to life uh, from non-life? I don't know. It's, a, it's very hand-wavy, and it sort of makes it look <laughs> like um, that somehow quantum mechanics knows where it's going. It's trying to invent life. We don't want to introduce anything quite uh, so blatant or so goal-oriented as that. Uh, but l looking at chemical pathways quantum mechanically can certainly 
change the numbers that come out. And, and it is a numbers game. The question we'd like to know is, given a mishmash of chemicals, uh, what is the probability that something living will emerge? And if that probability is enhanced by a factor of you know, a thousand or a million or a trillion or something like that because of quantum effects, well, it may change our attitude to how likely this is. It certainly is intriguing. One of the many moments in the book that left me speechless was when you talked about these organisms, extremophiles, as we have come to call them, who live near these vents at the bottom of the ocean, that perform photosynthesis, and that they are amazingly efficient, that there are some of these photosynthetic structures that can actually get benefit from a single photon. Right, right. So it looks like photosynthesis, which, uh, as I've described, and we think of plants, uh, is exploiting these quantum effects. But we have to look at the history uh, of photosynthesis. It didn't start with plants. It started uh, deep down in the deep ocean volcanic vents uh, billions of years ago. And so life probably began in that setting. And uh, there, there isn't much light down there. In fact, it's... Uh, there is no light from the sun penetrates to those sorts of depths, talking kilometers. Uh, but there will be some uh, infrared uh, radiation uh, from these hot uh, surfaces and so on. Photosynthesis uh, almost certainly first evolved. Uh, that is, uh, when I say photosynthesis, I mean using uh, the energy of photons to make biomass, which is what it amounts to. But the mechanism, might original mechanism, was probably very different. Uh, and, of course, uh, we... Uh, can speculate that it was at that stage that life discovered a quantum advantage uh, in that uh, deep, dark uh, hellhole, as mm. we might think of it now, discovered that uh, quantum mechanics could buy some advantage in, in biology. You don't need much advantage for it to become selected for. Uh, and that uh, then once you have the basis of a mechanism, turning photons into, into uh, biomass, in some way, or using it as an energy source for uh, converting chemicals into biomass. Once you've got that, then that uh, basic principle can then spread to uh, life on the surface, as, as you know clearly it has, without having to rediscover it all over again. Uh, so uh, a lot of these things go back a long, long way hmm. uh, in time. Uh, we can uh, date the genes. We can uh, look at the genes that drive this and get some idea of when these effects uh, evolved. This is a very new field. It's called phylostratigraphy. It means we can take extant genes and ask something about uh, these recently evolved genes, ancient genes. And we always have the impression that anything that is truly fundamental to the way life does business must be very ancient. You build the foundations before you build the rest of the house. Uh, and this is a burgeoning field of phylostratigraphy, and it's very important for cancer research as well as uh, things like photosynthesis. Also an area that you explore in the book. I don't mean to imply that uh, photosynthesis may have been around at the origin of life on Earth, but no, I, no, I, no. I, I do wonder what all of this may say to you about how we should be looking for the origin of life, not just here, but elsewhere. Of course, we have no uh, certainty that life on Earth began on Earth. It may have begun on Mars, for example, and come to Earth in impact ejecta. We know Earth and Mars trade rocks on a regular basis, and uh, organisms cocooned in those rocks can certainly make the journey and be viable at the other end. So Mars cooled quicker, was ready for life sooner. Mm. So it may have got going there and uh, come here at a later stage. But of course, it doesn't... Uh, That's it, just it exporting explain. the question. Yes, it doesn't explain how 
non-life turns into life. We actually don't know the setting. There are a few um, favourites out there. Some people like the deep ocean uh, volcanic vent setting. Some people prefer uh, ponds on the surface that go through cycles of wet and dry. Some people like uh, droplets in the air. Some people want to take it off the planet and, uh, say, uh, put it in comets. Who knows? We we absolutely don't know because we don't know what the, the process was. As we were discussing earlier, it might have been uh, the quantum mechanics played a really important role, uh, but we're very far from establishing that. And experiments in the lab, of which this uh, university was a you know pioneer, blazed a trail of can you cook up life in the lab by mixing stuff up uh, that we think uh, represents the early Earth and uh, uh, sparking electricity through it to see what will happen. You're talking about the Miller-Urey uh, uh, famous experiment. Miller-Urey yes. experiment. Stanley Miller was uh, here. That uh, gives you some simple building blocks. And there's a whole tradition of uh, chemists uh, doing that, of of trying to cook up more and more complex molecules. But the gulf between these sorts of building block molecules and the simplest living things, like Craig Venter's Mycoplasma Laboratorium, is uh, a slimmed-down organism. But it's still immensely complex compared to a few of these building blocks and that gulf is huge and as I've been at pains to point out I think it's focusing on the wrong problem I think that life is it's not the stuff of which it's made Hmm. it's the software it's the information processing and that's where the the transition from non-life to life that's that's the one we have to understand how do molecules write code computer code to to put it bluntly It's, it's like cells are really just in many ways, like computers, they uh, store information, they uh, process it, and they propagate it. And it's in code. It's encrypted. The genetic code is uh, an encryption. It's one of uh, countless possible mathematical codes that could be used. All known life uses the same code. How did that code come to exist in the first place? How did these stupid molecules write anything as clever as the genetic code? We don't know. But that's a software problem, not a hardware problem. We could stop there, but I must take you just a bit deeper into speculation and discuss life as we don't know it. For example, if there is some kind of or some level of quantum mechanical reliance uh, by life, and if quantum mechanical processes don't like heat, don't like the chaos that heat brings, what about someplace like Titan? the moon of Saturn, or even colder places, Pluto, which may have liquid water someplace, but is a very cold environment. Ignore liquid water, because I did say life that is not like us. Does this get your mind working at all? Uh, Probably the craziest paper I ever published, which was in the journal Nature about 15 years ago, was on a quantum origin of life. Uh, And I wanted to go even colder, so I picked uh, an interstellar grain uh, that might be rather close to the uh, temperature of the cosmic microwave background, uh, about three degrees above absolute zero. Uh, If you want to go cold, that's a pretty good place to do it. And conjectured, by analogy with a computer again, uh, when you think about a computer, the microchip is incredibly fast at processing information. It uh, really turns over at an enormous uh, uh, speed. But you turn off the power and you lose that information. So what do computers do? Well, they store it on, used to be a hard drive, used to be literally a spinning disk, 
So let's go with that analogy. Big, clunky, slow, but very robust. The information is stored there. So I had this idea that quantum life, if it could be based on quantum replication, variation, and selection, would be some um, condensed matter physics system like a spin glass with uh, complexity there, but a replicative ability as well. I've no idea about the physics of that. You know, it all sounds impressive. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't work it out. But, you know, imagine something that was incredibly fast because it was essentially quantum mechanical information mm-hmm. processing. Qubits, not rather than bits, uh, to use the jargon. Um, but uh, hopelessly um, de- delicate uh, and uh, unable to spread. Uh, but imagine that it backed up that information in the equivalent of a hard disk. And what that hard disk would be is organic molecules, Big, clunky, slow, but robust things. Mm. And then eventually, it's as if you know the hard disk says to the chip in a computer, uh, I've got enough to make a living on my own goodbye, and goes off and inherits the earth. Uh, and so uh, that, was the, that was the scenario, that the or- organic uh, backup, slow but reliable, would be the next generation of life. These little grains are probably still doing their thing out there, but we wouldn't know about them because they couldn't live on Earth because it's too warm. Seeding the universe. Uh, Yes, yes. This is a crazy theory. (laughs) (laughs) But But, great fun. Well, my feeling is that this is such a problem, this uh, uh, origin of life, uh, that we need to just think outside the box. We need new concepts. So it's not enough to just think, well, we've got a rough idea You've got this molecule or that molecule, and will it make more of this, and is it more efficient at making that? That's locked into a particular way of thinking, which, uh, fine, you know, if people want to do that, but I think I'm sort of bored with that narrative. Uh, We just need to think if life is really about software, not hardware, not the stuff. It's about the uh, information patterns. Well, as you know, again, with a computer, you can copy uh, a file from a computer onto a flash drive and then you can send it down optical fiber and so on. The medium, the instantiation of that information is irrelevant. The pattern mm. is uh, it transcends that. And if you think of life as really being about copying patterns of information and not so much about copying the stuff, then we don't need all this complicated, replicated machinery. So in, in life as we know it, you copy the molecules, you make new molecules. You make the, it's like, you know, you, you, you want to copy a file from your computer. You, you put it on a flash drive. You wouldn't think, well, let's make another hard drive with, a, you know, everything on it. I mean, it would just not, not be the way to do it. So I think um, trying to think in those terms or any other terms, uh, we, we just need new thinking hmm. about this extraordinary thing that we call life. My strong impression is that you enjoy thinking about these things, topics like this, even more than the great enjoyment I've gotten out of this conversation or your book. It's true that I enjoy it, and I wouldn't write about it if I didn't think it was enormous fun. Thank you, Paul. This has been delightful. It's my pleasure. Thank you. The book is The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mysteries of Life by our guest, Paul Davies. It is from the University of Chicago Press, and uh, I could not recommend it more highly. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He is back to tell us about the night sky, and uh, we'll do some other stuff, like in the new contest, give away that copy of Paul Davies' book, The Demon in the Machine. Planet party time again. 
the evening in the west, Venus dominating, looking like a super bright star. And then uh, on the 27th of February, the moon, the very crescenty moon, will join uh, Venus in the evening west. And then in the pre-dawn east, we've got Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Got Mars to the upper right looking reddish, Jupiter much brighter to the lower left. And then if you have a clear view to the horizon, you can pick up Saturn down below. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1965 that Ranger 8 impacted the moon on purpose, taking pictures and transmitting <laughs> them back before it uh, it did that. We'll come back to Ranger. Huh. And then uh, 1994, the Clementine spacecraft entered lunar orbit. I don't want to ruin any uh, trivia questions, but was that the first Ranger to be successful? I know that there were a whole bunch that weren't. Gosh, funny you'd ask. That makes this less of a random space fact. (laughs) (laughs) The Ranger program uh, was a bunch of robotic spacecraft that were designed to get the highest resolution at the time pictures of the lunar surface as they were uh, planning for landing humans. And they were impactors, so they would just take pictures and transmit as they were headed down to crash. And indeed, the first six failed. According to uh, the internet, the program was called Shoot and Hope for a while. Uh, That's (laughs) embarrassing. And then uh, something changed, and uh, JPL succeeded with Ranger 7, which successfully returned images in July 1964. And then there were a couple more successful missions as well, and they gave us uh, close-up views of the moon as they slammed in, or before they slammed into the moon. I was a, a, a very young kid, and I remember watching the live coverage. Uh, since the pictures had to come back live, I mean, you know, wasn't going to be able to transmit them later. It was absolutely fascinating, and it was such a big deal at the, at the time. I still remember it with a lot of excitement. Cool. Well, then you will enjoy our trivia contest as well. But first, let's talk about the previous trivia contest, which is... Always interesting. I'm sure lots of people had it on the tip of their tongue when I asked, what was Lyman Spitzer's middle name for whom the Spitzer Space Telescope was named? How'd we do, Matt? First, this comment about the Spitzer Space Telescope, which, of course, we we just talked to those leaders of that great uh, uh, grand observatory, that great observatory in space, which has now been decommissioned, Benjamin Mittis, down under, Australia. He said, it's always sad to hear that space hardware has been decommissioned, but there is always something new and exciting to look forward to. Congratulations to all the team involved and what amazing work they produced. That's for sure. What an amazing mission with so many uh, great, great results. Here's the answer in the form of our submission from the Poet Laureate Dave Fairchild in Kansas, who also mentioned what a guy Spitzer was. I'll have more about that. Maybe you will, too. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from uh, Yale. Lyman Spitzer Sr. had a son who shared his name, born in 1914, who would rise to great acclaim. Telescopes and asteroids his moniker would share, although you'll rarely see the strong part mentioned anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, strong, Lyman Strong Spitzer Jr., then congratulations go to first-time winner, long-time listener, Joel Lecter in uh, Quebec. You have won yourself a copy of Spitzer Project Scientist Michael Werner's new book, 
more things in the heavens, how infrared astronomy is expanding our view of the universe, and a planetary radio t-shirt. Mark Smith in San Diego. He said he was hoping that the middle name would be Alpha, Lyman Alpha. (laughs) Astronomy joke. (laughs) Yeah. Astronomers around the world are are rolling on the floor right now, just just like Bruce. Uh, He says, unfortunately, (laughs) this wrong. (laughs) There it is. I knew it. Darren Ritchie in Washington State, fascinated to discover that among many other things, he invented the Stellarator, now enjoying new popularity in fusion, fusion research. That was back in the 50s. I also discovered that he helped develop sonar. Darren went on to say he made the first ascent of Mount Thor, in Arctic Canada, which features Earth's tallest vertical cliff face. What a life. Wow. Daniel Huckabee in Nevada, Planetary Society member and avid listener here, he says, not only was the Spitzer Space Telescope named after him, he actually came up with the idea to put telescopes in space. Now that is a strong idea. And that's true. I I read up on this too. He wrote about the advantages of a space telescope in 19. 46, he later oversaw the creation of OAO, or Orbiting Astronomical Observatory 3, the first one that really worked well, apparently. With that in mind, this closing poem from Eugene Lewin in Washington State, with foresight and support of peers, developed OAO in the early years, leading to the four great observatories, Chandra, Compton, and the first, HST, the fourth with vision, just as long, named for Professor Spitzer. Lyman Strong. <laughs> I want to get that as a wristband. Lyman Strong. <laughs> <laughs> but the only way to really see it is to look in the infrared. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. I love it. I love it. An infrared one. We'll, we'll talk to our contacts about that. Now we're ready to go on to your, your what? Ranger-related new question? Ranger-related new question. What ranger mission imaged Mari... Tranquilidades, or the Sea of Tranquility, the place that, of course, later would be the first place humans stepped onto Mars, or the moon. Take your pick. (laughs) What ranger mission imaged Mare Tranquilidades, or however you pronounce it? I'm sorry to all the Latins in the crowd. Um, Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Got till the 26th. That's February 26th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. To get us this one, and if you win, you will get a copy of Paul Davies' The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. And a Planetary Society rubber, I didn't do that very well, rubber asteroid. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, think about your favorite word that begins with the letter X. Shouldn't take long, although if you go to other languages, maybe. Thank you. Good night. If I had a xylophone, I would use it like the old NBC tones. Duh, duh, duh. I would have a, a, a series of tones like that for planetary radio. So I'm going to say xylophone. Cool. We should get you a xylophone. It only needs three. It only needs three notes. It'll be cheaper that way. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its well-informed members. Will you join us at planetary.org slash membership? Mark Hilverd is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. At Astro. <laughs>